Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday, except this week, just on Monday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to share with your friends, recommend on social media, speaking of social media, Please follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. Happy Memorial Day for those that live in the United States. Happy Stanley Cup Finals Day for everybody else and those that live in the United States for that matter. We got the Boston Bruins playing the St. Louis Blues tonight. I'm looking forward to it. Of course, as many of you know, my wife is from Boston, so I'm sure she'll be screaming at the TV and screaming at Chara all night. I personally think that it's going to be the Boston Bruins that win it, so it kind of kills me. They've won enough already. You've had the Red Sox win. You've had the Patriots win and now possibly the Boston Bruins. But kudos either way to the St. Louis Blues. Uh, Rob DeMaio, Jamie Rivers, Derek. Aaron Kimball, so many guys, Tim Taylor, that we've had on the podcast are tied to that organization. So awesome to see that they made it to the Stanley Cup Finals. And I hope that they do well. And and uh, also great to see Brett Harkins, you know, who he was on a few weeks ago, scout for his Boston Bruins there in the finals. And I do think, as I said, it's going to be the Boston Bruins. But then again, what do I know? I'm just a guy sitting here with a microphone doing a podcast as we wrap up season one. Can't believe we made it all the way through and got to thank all the players and every one of you that listened every week had such a great time. So many good stories. And I think season two is going to be even better. I've already got some interviews lined up for next season. Can't wait to start recording those. I'm probably going to take the next two, two and a half weeks off, uh, relax a little bit, watch the finals, probably get geared up for the NHL draft. It's my favorite day of the year. And then we'll start recording interviews and banking them. So that way next September, when hockey season rolls around again, we have one of these every single week and can continue to dive historical hockey moments this week another historical hockey moment is going to be documented the inaugural season of the atlanta thrashers typically what we do is we break them up into two interviews this time we're only releasing them as one but we got chris tamer he joined us chris was awesome great guy one thing i want to say about this interview is chris did this over phone so it sounds a little monotone but when you listen to his stories there's some really good gems in here and I really got a kick out of some of the stories he shared especially with how much of a character Sean Donovan in and, and his and Ray Ferraro is also hearing about kind of traveling through Atlanta and playing in some of these southern markets as they tried to spread the word of the Atlanta Thrashers especially during the exhibition season so some funny stuff kind of shared there and he also talks a little bit about what it's like playing for a team where you're struggling and you're you're trying to pull things together and you really don't have a lot going right for you. He also talks about some trades. So good stuff here from Chris Tamer. Really enjoyed that. He runs a CrossFit gym in Michigan, which I'll post a link to the address if you're ever in Michigan and want to stop by for a quick workout. Awesome dude. So glad he stopped by. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and cut to the interview with Chris Tamer on the inaugural season of the Atlanta Thrashers. The National Hockey League awarded Atlanta with an expansion franchise in 1997. The ownership group, which included billionaire Ted Turner, announced the name of the team followed the following February and looked to the Georgia State Bird, the Brown Thrasher, and the Atlanta Thrashers were born. The team picked up its first players, Damian Rhodes and Andrew Burnett, through trades, but the team would really begin to take its shape on January 5th at the Fleet Center in Boston. 
the prior year you had played with the New York Rangers. Did you realize you had been left exposed in the expansion draft? What were your thoughts? What did what did you know about the Thrashers? I knew it was an expansion team, and there was uh, there were some opportunities there, and I did know that I was going to be exposed. Why do you think the Rangers left you exposed? Do you think they just had a glut of defensemen at the time, and and just you happened to be the odd man out? I think so. I think that's the way it uh, the way it happened. Um, back then, uh, there wasn't a salary cap, so and the Rangers were a wealthy team, and they could afford a lot of players, and they they were always uh, active in the free agent market. Um, so they had a lot of high priced players, and they were going to bring in more high priced players and. Honestly, it's probably the best thing for me to, to go somewhere else. I had a great time in New York. It's a fun place to play. They had a lot of great players there. I got a chance to play with Wayne Gretzky and, and uh, watch him retire, um, be part of that. But it was a good time for me to get out of uh, get out of that, that situation. Well, I've got to ask, it's a little off topic, but what were your experiences with Wayne like? I can only imagine. I mean, the greatest of all time. It was uh, It was memorable. And it was it was pretty impactful as a as a, as a player um, watching watching him go through a day to day stuff day to day routine and then uh, when he retired I just remember how much it meant to the whole the whole hockey world and in the country of Canada and and everyone it was uh, it was absolutely amazing what happened at that point it had to be incredibly special playing with him but back on your time with Atlanta you talked about you go ahead and get picked and who originally contacted you from the Thrashers like how did you find out how did all that go down well Donnie Waddell uh reached out and uh he's a he's from Michigan and our paths have crossed before and I had a ton of respect for Donnie Waddell he does he did a great job um and so we knew each other from before. So he called, and then, and then that's how I found out. So you head down to Atlanta for the first time, and this is a new hockey market. And I know that you did some appearances at like Tower Records and stuff like that. But how did the community receive you guys? I mean, you're the new game in town. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, it was interesting because it was an expansion team, so it was brand new. But it was also there's also a little bit of we're down south, and I'm gonna touch a little bit. Because there's football and baseball and um, and there's a lot of other sports to compete to compete with uh, the sport market, um, but there are some there are a lot of diehard fans down there that really enjoyed um, having an NHL team there. After the initial expansion draft, the team actually changed quite a bit due to trades made by GM Don Waddell, who you just referred to, and players were also retiring. <laughs> I know Mark Tenorti retired. It seemed like things were, even though the expansion draft was taking place, did Don tell you kind of what he expected out of you? and 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 Or were you still sitting on the edge of your seat like, okay, I'm supposed to report to Atlanta, but who knows how this is going to play out? That was pretty clear. It was pretty clear that I was going to, at least for me, I'm not sure of other people's, uh, other players' experiences, right. but he was always up front, up front, and it was clear that I was heading down to Atlanta and um, I was going to be a part of the Thrashers for the inaugural season. So we're going into training camp. According to the Atlanta Constitution, the Pucks hadn't even made it to Atlanta until four days prior to camp. It's the team's inaugural season. Is it just like chaos? Is it how would you compare it to the Pittsburgh Penguins or the Rangers as you get ready to go into training camp? Because this is a brand new team. This is something new. Yeah, it was a little different because we were down in uh, 
I think we were down in Florida for training camp. You were. You started out in Orlando. And started our exhibition games. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that's where our farm team was. Or um, I forget the association we had there, but um, I thought it worked out. I thought it worked out fine. There were a few. Um, it was a little different than previous uh, years, but um, I think it's we were just all excited to start with a new team. Just days before the start of camp, the Thrashers signed their first-round pick, who went second overall in the 1990 entry draft, Patrick Steffen. And it's reported that Steffen would receive a maximum base salary of a rookie, which was a little over $3 million, and then had opportunities to earn more depending on how the team played. So there was the A incentives with how he played, and then the B incentives with how the team played. And you talked about this was pre-salary cap era. What was, I mean, were these contracts... Now they're more standard, it seems like. What were contracts like back then? Was this common? Yeah, I think it was common for first-rounders to get, uh, to get through their contracts. Now it's, now it's different. I think they're set on what they're getting, as far as I know. But um, back then it wasn't uh, it was common for first-rounders to get, to get large contracts and, instead of base contracts. I guess what I'm asking, though, is, is when you played – were there a lot of incentive-based contracts or, or creative contracts that you saw that were just different that would never fly today? I would think so. I didn't. I, I'm not sure if I have anyone else's contracts, but I do know that um, there were incentives with people, uh, if players were on teams that advanced in the uh, in the playoffs, they got bonuses, and some of the bonuses were attached to the to the next year's contract. Got some escalators in there, um, but I don't really know other than my contracts. Fair enough. Fair enough. You don't know what you don't know. Training camp kicks off in Orlando, the home of the Thrashers minor league team, the Orlando Solar Bears. And you said it was a little bit different, but it's being conducted by head coach Kurt Frazier and the Thrashers management. What was Kurt like as a head coach? Driven. He was, uh, he was intense and he was driven. He wanted, to get, he wanted to get to work right away. I thought Donnie picked a great coach for, uh, you know, for a group of, a group of sort of, you know, he called call us all unwanted players from their previous teams. Talk uh, about Kurt was a, was a great fit for for us for that season. And I know that camp was very physical, according to the Atlanta Constitution. And evidently, you guys had to do the beep test. For people that might not remember the beep test, do you remember doing this? Because I remember from my refing career, this thing was like a nightmare. I hated this test. <laughs> Yeah, I do remember it. I remember being in the gym, and uh, I remember going through the beat test. And um, yeah, it was good. I think that's I think that's what the camp was. There's a lot of energy in the camp, from what I remember, because everything was new, and people wanted to make a good first impression. And uh, and personally, I thought I was ready for the camp. Uh, physically, I was ready for. It, so I didn't have much of a problem with it. God, I hated that beep test. It sounds like you handled it well, but I used to hate that with refing. And you talked about the energy being there. Were there any younger players that you got to know or that really impressed you on the ice? Because you're right, this was really a hodgepodge of talent in Atlanta. That's a good question. I'm trying to remember uh, exactly who was there. He's not a younger player, but a guy about my age, Mike Stapleton and I were were hanging out quite a bit and Mm -hmm. became good friends with him and still are good friends with him, so... Um, it was good to go in and meet a new group, new group of uh, players. I'm trying to remember some of the some of the young guys. 
Well, you had Patrick Steffen, of course, that came in there. He was a rookie. And then you had uh, several goalies that were rookies as well. And I'm sure we'll touch on that. But you're kind of at an interesting spot in your career. You're not a rookie anymore, but you're not exactly like a grizzled veteran like a Ray Ferrero or Kelly Bookberger. So where did you fit in with the team? What did you feel your role was going to be? Well, I consider myself uh, more of an established player that could provide some leadership on that team. Uh, we had a wide group of players, and we had great leaders like uh, Bucky and Ray, Ray Ferraro. Um, but I, I still felt confident in my ability to come into a locker room and help um, help add something to it. So you definitely brought that that leadership because you had played previously in Pittsburgh and in New York, and as the exhibition games begin. I can't believe some of the unique Southern markets you guys played in Greenville, South Carolina, Columbus, Georgia. You're going into these rinks. What were these rinks like? I mean, these aren't NHL caliber rinks. <laughs> uh, quite an experience. It was, uh, it was always interesting walking into a new rink. Not, not sure of, uh, of where we're at. And some days I think so. one day we got in there, we got in there five hours before and we, we got in there, Early enough to where we didn't, we couldn't have got a hotel room, but we had to go to the rink, and it was too early. So we ended up just going to the rink and hanging out for five hours before the game. But um, sometimes that happens, and in the preseason, I was going to say it feels like you're probably back at college or something like that. I mean, how do you kill five hours? I just imagine a bunch of NHL guys just sitting, kind of playing cards and hanging out. I guess. Well, I was talking uh, talking about fly fishing techniques and and tall stories with Jay Leach. Oh, Jay, Jay was yeah. <laughs> the assistant coach there, and we both like to fly fish, so that's how we killed we killed some time. He, of course, would go on to coach. He'd have a pretty successful NHL coaching career. I know he coached in Washington later. <laughs> the team would go ahead. The preseason would come to a close, and the Thrashers drew the lucky fortune of playing the who would go on to win the Stanley Cup that year, the New Jersey Devils, and this team was loaded. But it was a hell of a first game. The Thrashers lost, unfortunately, 4-1, to one, but you ended up being pretty active and getting the first fight in franchise history when you took on Randy McKay. What was all that about? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I, I, well, I knew I probably had, didn't have a great chance on being the first Thrasher to score a goal, but <laughs> I figured I'd try to do something and help out the team. And I knew they had a physical team, and I just... A lot of times, the beginning of the season, especially with a new team, players want to show show the team and show show the fans what they're going to do for the team, what they can offer, and that's the stuff that I had to do. And how did the team react to you after that fight? Was it kind of established that you were going to have a little bit of an enforcer role on that team? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, and I don't know if it's as much being an enforcer as, as it is just willing to stand up for for the team when needed. Absolutely. And we're not going to go game by game, but the team would go on to lose its next two home games before embarking on a three game road trip. You were quoted in the Atlanta constitution as saying, when you play in a different environment, you stick together a little bit more. So let's talk about those early road trips that you guys had. Do you have any memories of, of being on the road with the Atlanta thrashers? Who were you rooming with? Yeah, I remember rooming with uh, Ray, Ray Ferraro. And I can't remember if that's uh who we started out rooming with, but I spent a lot of time rooming with Razor, and uh, it was a lot of fun because he was always keeping me on my toes. 
And and I've got to ask, can you share with us how he'd keep you on your toes? Was he just a funny guy? He seems kind of quirky to me. And and did you know he was going to get into broadcast eventually? It fit right. Uh, it was right up his alley. And if someone told me that he'd be being broadcasting, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been shocked at all. He always wanted to compete. He wanted to throw IP it out. He wanted to fans him back and forth. Um, and if you. And if you weren't participating, he sort of egged you on to participate. And, um, <laughs> there's always there's always some jokes going on. Over your career, you mentioned a joke. What is one of the funniest ones that you saw over the years? Well, sometimes guys will go into other guys' rooms, hotels' rooms, while they're on the road. They'll sneak in and rearrange the furniture and undo the light bulbs and make a mess of the place. <laughs> um, that may have happened a few times um, but I'm not going to say who who did it well it sounds like you might we'll have reveal that. yeah we don't want to we don't want to reveal the smoking gun it sounds like you might have partaken but but this is off the record and the statute of limitations are still going on the Thrashers would go on to have a pretty good first road trip a tough loss to a overtime to an overtime to the Colorado Avalanche but you'd end up fighting Chris Dingman and we've had Chris on the show. I'm just curious as a, as a guy that was a fighter, what was Chris like? Uh, he felt like he was uh, about 250 pounds. So it felt like he didn't really, uh, he's, he was a good player. He was a good player and he was a really smart fighter. But when you grab onto a guy, he doesn't move too much. He was, he was pretty strong and heavy. I imagine that's like kind of fighting the Statue of Liberty almost. Like it's just not moving. It's just not going anywhere. It felt like fighting a uh, grizzly bear. Not that I ever have, but it felt like you grabbed onto a grizzly bear when you fought a guy like Chris Dingman. Mm, mm, mm. At at this part in the season, we've kind of rolled through. You've played four or five games at home. What were the crowds like at Phillips Arena? Well, it was sporadic. I think the fans are starting to figure out who we were and um, the days of the week mattered. What what days the games were, but when the when uh, when the fans were in the ring, it was fun. There was a lot of energy. The team would round out the month with a win against the Flames and two losses before heading back in November, where the team went two and seven. Andrew Brunette at this time was leading the team in points and goals, and we haven't talked a lot about him on the podcast. He had had eleven points in ten games. What kind of player was Andrew Brunette? He was uh, probably one of the smartest players I've ever played with. And he was pretty unassuming, so you wouldn't really, um, you wouldn't notice him the way you'd notice a lot of other players. But um, just because of his, he's he's highly skilled in his intelligence. Um, he was able to put points on the board, and he was a great player to play with. I'm watching him play with whatever forwards he was paired up with. Um, they always did well because of him. On Friday, November 19th, the Buffalo Sabers were in town for a home and home series. The Sabres got the best of the Thrashers on the scoreboard, but not necessarily when it came to the tough stuff. Matt Johnson ended up having a heavyweight bout with Rob Ray. You ended up fighting twice, and a young gun Patrick Steffen was actually knocked out of the game after taking hits from Jay McKee and Richard Schmelick. After the game, your Thrashers teammate Andrew Burnett, who we just talked about, was quoted as saying, if you want to send a message, fine, but you can't do it to our franchise player. Patrick Steffen was a young guy. He was a rookie at the time. Was there kind of an unwritten rule in the NHL that you didn't go after certain guys? Because it sounds like from reading the Atlanta Constitution, a lot of guys were upset that Patrick Steffen had been targeted. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was an unwritten rule about certain players, first rounders, high end, high end picks, and I think it might be a little different now. But back then, it the fighting was more prevalent, and enforcers were were on the ice. 
and that's just a way to protect the franchise, protect the players, and allow the players to play. So absolutely, I think we, we did take it personally when when someone would go after our first-round offensive player, first-round pick. I'm sure. I mean, oh, yeah. it's like you said, you're protecting your franchise. You're also protecting the business because a lot of those players are who fans pay to see. So that makes complete sense. Right. Right. And uh, there was a Wayne Gretzky rule. and Mario had Jay Caulfield around and, and it just kind of made sense. A lot of the, the uh, talented players, the high-end players that play the game with, without getting, uh, without being bothered or cheap shot too much. The next day after playing, the team in Atlanta heads to Buffalo and GM Dodd Waddell and head coach Kurt Fraser pack a bus up and shuttle the team to the border to check out Niagara Falls. This is an interesting thing. It's a way for the team to bond. And did you guys do a lot of stuff off the ice together to kind of bring the group together? We did. We did. Not that we had a lot of time um, to do extra stuff because we're busy with games and practices and travel. But um, that's one thing I thought they did well and they were organized. Donnie was organized with uh, with who was helping out with the team in terms of events like that. Were there any other events that stick out to you that you guys participated in? I remember doing uh, it was some events down at Phillips Arena mm-hmm. for the fans, and uh, he had all the players participate and and stuff like that. I can't remember too many other uh, too many other events. I know the players got got together and did uh, played paintball. Oh, that's fun. So that was good. And after the preseason, um, we all got together and, and stuff like that's fun when you get the, you get outside of the rink. Oh, for sure. Guys and, uh, and do some fun stuff. It brings everybody together. And the Thrashers, of course, weren't the first <clears throat> NHL team that set up in Atlanta. Uh, back in 1980, the franchise left. And I'm curious, you know, so many people liked living in Atlanta, they said. Did you see any of these older flames around? Because I think a lot of them stuck around. We did. Um and we saw, I think we saw him at a golf outing, and we met him on, uh, they came to some of the games, like uh, Tim Ecclestone um, was one of the guys I remember, and he had us out to, he had a bar, a restaurant, mm-hmm. so he took care of some of the players, I'm trying to remember some of the other names there. To say, I know Daniel Bouchard was down there, a goaltender that played for the Flames and uh, went on to play for the Nordiques as well. I think he's still there. Yeah, and there's a tough, there's a tough guy, former tough guy with blonde hair, the big, big guy, he was still down there. Um, I can't remember his name, but there are a few guys. So we're heading into Y2K, and this is a unique time, not only for the National (laughs) League Hockey League, but really society. The internet's continuing to grow and become a huge part of our everyday lives. I know some teams embraced technology and gave players laptops to participate in team chats and things like that. Did the Thrashers harness technology in any way? Um, No, we didn't get get laptops. I think at that time, (laughs) cell phones were becoming more popular. I think it was common for everybody to have cell phones, from what I remember. But no, I mean, we didn't get uh, we didn't get any electronic device given to us. Well, hey, you don't know until you ask. And the Thrashers head west on a long road trip during December with games across the country, including San Jose, L.A., and Anaheim. And goaltender Norm Miracle would start four in a row on this trip. What was he like as a goalie? And for that matter, really, what was the goaltending situation like? It looked like the team had seven different goalies at one point during the year. Yeah, that's one position that had seemed like it had a rotating goal. We had a lot of goalies come in and out, a um, few unfortunate injuries. And it, but it gave a guy like Norm Miracle, and I think he came from Detroit, um, where they had they had some uh, they had some other goalies in their in their system. It gave him a chance to play. He was a well liked goalie. I think a majority of goalies that that do well 
they get the support of their teammates are, are well liked. They want to play. Players want to play for him. And he was he was those guys. One goalie that would end up leaving town was Rick Tabaracci. He ends up getting traded by Don Waddell in exchange for Sean Donovan, and Sean would join the team. What do you think Sean brought to the team, and why do you think he was brought in? He was uh, he's Sean's quite a character. He brought a bunch of like kind of fun energy to the team because he was just excited to be on a different uh, on a different team, have another opportunity. Um, I remember him coming in and sitting next to him on the bus on his first day and we were talking and he was just excited. He was excited for uh, for a whole new environment. It's funny the things that you remember and Don Waddell continues to tweak the roster. And while the team is on this West Coast road trip, he makes a claim off waivers. And this guy, I know nothing about, but evidently 23 teams have put in a claim for him. What can you tell me about Roman Neuter? I, I know nothing about this guy other than I, he was very popular, but he only played in the league a little bit. Yeah. Um, I played with him in New York. I can't remember if I played with him in Atlanta or not. He played a couple what games. Where did he get picked up? He got picked up that year. Evidently, he got picked up off waivers, and 23 teams had made a claim for him. And the Thrashers ended up getting him, and, and yeah. he's a guy I know nothing about. So he was he was a tough defenseman. I didn't know much about him either. Um, I don't, I'm not sure where he came from or or why he was uh, put up on waivers, but I remember him being a tough defenseman, at least when we played in uh, played in New York together. After playing out West, the team headed back to play against the division rival, the Washington Capitals, where the team suffered a 4 nothing loss. Denny Lambert told the Atlanta Constitution, everyone in this room is frustrated. Chris, the team hadn't performed great, and it was struggling on defense. How are you holding up during the, all this? I mean, we're about halfway through the season. What do you remember? I mean, what were you thinking? It was tough. It was tough at times, just because if you're playing playing games for a while and you don't have a victory, you don't have a reason to celebrate at all, um, it does wear on you. Um, and it wore on uh, all the players and it wore on the team. And now I remember Kurt Frazier, uh, he was he was getting frustrated, and I think he got frustrated because some of the effort wasn't uh, wasn't there. And that's pretty much all he wanted. He wanted to make sure that we get consistent effort as a team. It was an expansion team, so and as you said, and th- I, this is not a knock on you guys. The team was kind of made up of of players that maybe other teams didn't want. At any point, did you feel that the talent wasn't there, or did you just feel it wasn't clicking? Yeah, there was a little bit of a um, feeling that we didn't have the the talent. Well, the talent wasn't developed yet um, on the team. Um, and we understood that. That's just the way the situation was. Um, but there's also an, another way to look at it. Is there's an opportunity for everyone in that locker room. That's the way I viewed it. Oh, my God, for sure. There's an I opportunity mean, to play and take a bigger role. Oh, my God. It just opened up 20 more jobs. On a different team. Yeah, for sure. For right, de- right yeah. exactly. For sure. And as the millennium comes to a close, the Thrashers suffer a loss to the Nashville Predators and start the year off with a loss against the Carolina Hurricanes. But the starting goalie for this game was actually rookie Scott Fankhauser due to Damian Rhodes being sidelined. And at this point, Sean Donovan's hurt. Johan Garpenlov is hurt. Your old roommate, David Harlock, is hurt. Were guys just beaten up at this point? Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, Yeah, I remember, uh, I think that happens a lot with NHL seasons right about that point. Some teams, some players start to wear down. Teams start getting the injury bug. So it just happens, and maybe it's a little bit more of an effect, and it could be a good or bad thing, but maybe a little bit more of an effect for uh, for an expansion team. 
We had Jim McKenzie on, and, and he related this to the dog days of summer, is that January and February. He said it gets easier in March and April. So it definitely sounds like, from what you said, that's kind of what the team was going through. But the team plays well. They go 3-2 and two over the next five games, including three games against the Washington Capitals over a four-day span. These games were you know three and four nights against the same team. Is that too much? I mean, the idea at the time was you'd play your division rivals eight times in a year. That was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but that's what we were given, so that's what we had to do. And I think the travel was, um, it's always good to see other teams, but um, to travel into the same place and playing the same teams gets, uh, gets a little bit old. It's good for the, not only the players, but the fans to see other teams. But back then, it, it, was what it was what it was, so we just had to do it. I'm sure you developed some good rivals against the Hurricanes and Capitals. And, and speaking of the Capitals, you just played them, and you ended up fighting one of the most strongest guys, and probably, in my opinion, one of the scariest guys in Chris Simon. Can you describe what you remember about that altercation or, or what you were thinking and going through? Yeah, well, I probably wasn't thinking much if I'm going <laughs> to fight a guy Chris Simon. I think he went through the league and, and he took on every heavyweight uh, in previous years. So he wasn't, he fought pretty much everybody. Um, but he was as big and tough as they come. I don't think you're going to find anyone that's bigger and tougher than him. But I also, like, he was probably the most, had the most respect for his job and other people's job. Not anybody. He wouldn't throw a, he wouldn't throw a dirty punch. He wouldn't suck or anybody. He would go after the tough guy. He's not going to go after someone else that doesn't really want to fight. Um, he had a lot of respect for the game. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I think he's up in Canada now, so hopefully he's, uh, He's doing all right. Rounding out the month of January and heading into February, the team really struggled, unfortunately, going 16 games without a win. And I'm sure without question, this was a difficult time. And and you talked about Kurt Frazier. What would he try to do to kind of bring some positive energy in? Was he a yeller or was he more of a motivational guy like a Ron Wilson? What was his style? His style was, I think he was probably the coach the way he played and led by example. Um, I remember him always coming on the ice and he was always ready when he came on the ice. He was never late. He was never dragging. And he he demanded that from the players. So that's when he got frustrated, when you hit the dark days of the season. When we're going, like, mentally, it's tough to not win in a handful of games. So mentally, we're kind of getting dragged down. Um, so that's when he had to come in. And and he did uh, he had an intimidating factor to him. And that's that's sort of one of the things that he did while he, while he coached us back then. I was in high school at this time, and I remember Atlanta coming up to Washington, D.C., where I live, and seeing him on the bench and my sister saying, oh, my God, that guy looks like a serial killer. <laughs> I'm assuming it sounds like he was that intimidating off the bench as well in the locker room because I just remember seeing this guy and being scared of him. Yeah, he was. Uh, he held the locker room. Um, he had the attention of the locker room, let's put it that way. But on the other hand, whenever you walked in his in his office and you shut the door, um, probably he was soft spoken. Um, he'd look you in the eyes. He was caring. He was considerate of what you're saying and how you're feeling. So he had both sides to him. He just he just had that look, but it sounds like he was a, a pretty good guy. And at this time, I'm sure the team captain Kelly Bookberger was also trying to you know, help get guys pumped up, help the team turn its corner. What was Kelly like as a captain? And for that matter, what was he like as a guy? Oh, Kelly, he loved the game. He loved the whole environment, playing hockey and traveling and being part of a team. He thrived in those situations. He was a great teammate. Obviously, he was a great teammate being a captain. 
embodied the way uh, Kurt Frazier coached. He probably they probably played the same way. Uh, when things weren't going well, he was the first guy to step up and and go do something on the ice just to let the guys know that he's there. He's gonna he's he's not gonna stand for the team heading in the wrong direction. Ray Ferrero would score the game winner as the Thrashers picked up their twelfth win of the season after getting out of that sixteen game losing streak. And he was quoted in the Atlanta Constitution as saying, It's fun to win. I forgot what it was like. How excited was everybody to finally go ahead and break this streak? Uh, I wish I could remember. I can't remember, but I remember having a few moments of uh few moments of excitement while we were getting out of the slump. Uh, um Ray was always a big part of that. I can imagine it was is definitely a relief, and we talked about Ray, but there were some other veterans on this team, including Gord Donnelly and Nelson Emerson. Can you share anything about these guys as hockey players? Well, those guys, I think they uh, just anyone that plays plays hundreds of games in the NHL, as many as those guys played, they always have a professional style to them, a professional, mm-hmm. a professionalism. Um, so they make sure they're well prepared for games. Um, they make sure they're not breaking themselves down. Um, outside of games, they practice hard, but they make sure they recover. They don't get too high. They don't get too low. I think guys like that really help in tough situations. Having veterans that that aren't going to jump off a cliff if we lose a game and aren't going <laughs> to celebrate like we won a Stanley Cup if we win a game. So um, much needed on a team like that. Unfortunately, the month of March was not kind to the team. During a game against Toronto, you'd end up getting hurt and placed on IR. It looked like something happened to your wrist. Do you do you rem- recall what happened that year? I think it was an MCL knee sprain. So the board was Matt Sundin, and uh, I bent my knee, left knee the wrong way. And Matt Sundin playing against him was he a physical guy? I mean, I know you went into the boards. How would you try to to to, to break him down? Probably one of the most talentedly, you know, probably one of the most offensively talented guys out there. He was. He had that. Uh, he had that great combination of size, strength, and a little bit of physicality when he had to, but just phenomenally talented. So talented guys never really worried me too much because you just knew they were talented. Big physical guys I felt felt comfortable handling. But guys like Eric Lindros and LeClaire, Matt Sundin, when they had the whole pack, when they had the total package, that was, they were tough to play against, and it was look back on it it was fun because it was a challenge because you can get knocked down on the same shift that they could skate around you and score a goal i'm sure you had to be ready with guys like matt sundin that's a really good point what you brought up because especially with your style you were more of a physical defenseman so it's like you can slow down the skilled player you can play the body on the physical player but when they got both it's like a recipe for disaster almost yeah you see some of the players playing the playoffs now um and the bigger, stronger players seem to do well. They seem to dominate at important times of the game. I think it's it's fun to watch. Just days later, after you're injured, it's announced that GM Dodd Waddell has traded current captain Kelly Bookberger and Nelson Emerson for two other NHL veterans and Donald Audette and Francis Stack Caberlet. What was everyone's reaction to this trade? What was your reaction when you saw that those guys had got sent to another team? I think at the time, uh, we knew it was... The trading deadline coming up, another team were looking to add depth to their teams, and I knew some of us were were available. So part of it, we we expected it, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, it, it was another big change in the locker room, which wasn't uh, which wasn't easy. Sure, and especially with two character guys, what do you think Donald Audette and what do you feel Francis Stack Caberlet brought to the team that maybe the team didn't have prior to their acquisition? Playmaking ability. 
mm-hmm. um, composure, playmaking ability. Um, they both were, they both were great with the puck, great offensively, and that's something that we needed. At this point, the lines and the pairings were mixed up a decent amount. And do you remember who you were playing with? And I'm sure you played with a combination of players uh, on defense. But was there anybody on this team that you felt you had great on ice chemistry with? I remember playing in New York or Pittsburgh with Sergey Zubov. Wow. And uh, him and I got, got along really well. We were a great, uh, um, we complimented each other really well. He was phenomenally uh, offensive, phenomenally talented offensively. In New York, I played with Matthew Schneider, a similar, similar player. Um, he was great with the puck. He moved the puck really well, and I could, uh, Compliment him as well, and then in Atlanta, uh, Yannick Tremblay was probably him and I played a bunch of games together, and we got along well off the ice. Um, we got along great on the ice. Um, it was probably one of the probably one of the best uh, one of the top defenseman pairings that I've had mm-hmm. in my career with Yannick. Sounds like it just worked with him. And the games continue for the Atlanta Thrashers. Rolling into March and after a homestead, the team heads north for a pair of games against the Leafs and Ottawa Senators. The Thrashers would pick up a huge 4-1 to lead over the Leafs. And the Leafs, of course, were captained by Matt Sundin, who we just talked about. Uh, the team would suffer a difficult 7-1 to loss against Daniel Alfredson and the Ottawa Senators and would not win another game in the month of March. So it's the end of the season. You guys are losing. You know you're not going to make the playoffs. Chris, as a professional athlete, how do you keep yourself motivated and keep playing? It's definitely not easy. I think you have to um, internalize what's what's going on and, and figure out what you can do to help the situation. Because um, if you think about the whole the whole team and the fact that the team doesn't have anything to play with, it can be pretty demoralizing. So I think you have to focus on you have to focus on something else. And for me, it was. Can I come to the practice and work hard? Can I play the best I can in games? And then if I can do that, then I can sort of have some uh, feeling that I helped out. It's almost like you can look in the mirror and say, I gave it my best. I know that I put everything out there. And as the Thrashers end the regular season with uh, only one more win against the New York Islanders in April, the team would play their final game just a week after that win in a one to two loss against the Carolina Hurricanes. So, so wrapping this up, Looking back all these years later, what were what do you think were the highlights for you of your first year in Atlanta, and and kind of what do you take what what do you take with you after that first year? Well, even though it was tough, it was a good challenge, and I appreciate the, I appreciate the fact that you get like any time you get a chance to play a season in the NHL. How great is that? I don't yeah. care where we're at, but um, and it was a challenge. Um, I remember the city being met good friends outside of the uh, rink, outside of the hockey world, um, and, uh, and the friends we had at the rink, uh, the, the friends we had as teammates, like Sean Donovan and Yannick Trombley and Jeff Rogers and Ray Ferraro. Um, we all went through this together. And it wasn't easy, but we all did it. So that's what I remember the teammates. You mentioned Jeff Rogers, and I'm I'm kind of improving here a little bit we just talked to brett harkins who was a teammate of jeff and he said jeff was one of the toughest guys he'd ever met but it wasn't tough in the way you would think as it was tough in the way of he could take a beating like nobody else he just would keep coming back for more is that an accurate statement about jeff yeah he was a consummate uh teammate and he was willing to uh, uh 
a stick up for the team at any time, even if it wasn't an easy time for him. Um, he always had this, his, he always had this quote stuck with me. It was just, you, sometimes you have to just man up and deal with your problems. Oh man. And that's the way he, that's the way he played. I just remember him. Not easy, but you got to man up. And he did. He did. I remember him challenging several players. Well, hey, Chris, you were nice enough to take some time to chat with us. Before we kind of cut it off, though, I, I give everybody an, op- an open forum if there's anything they want to say, tell fans what they're up to. So so what are you doing now? Right now, I've, uh, I'm living in Michigan. Um, I have three kids, 20, 19, and 15. Um, they're all active and playing sports and doing uh, doing things. I run a CrossFit affiliate. I've been doing that for the last 11 plus years, so I get a chance to be a part of. Uh, uh, we call it a team and train athletes, and we have coaches. So it seems like our athletes are average everyday people, and our um, we have coaches, and it feels like a team environment there. So that helps, um, which is what I really like um, like to be a part of. So I've been doing that the last 11 plus years. That's awesome. What's the website address if people are in Michigan and want to do a drop-in for your CrossFit gym? It's CrossFitRenton.com. I wasn't kidding in the interview when I said that my sister really thought that Kurt Frazier was a serial killer. I mean, he just looked like a bad dude on TV, but... Sounds like he was a good guy. I'm glad Chris was able to share some stories about him as well as Don Waddell and his inaugural season with the Atlanta Thrashers. So that's it. I can't believe it. We made it the entire season. So this will be the last episode of season one. Every interview is going to remain up in the archives on iTunes. so You can listen to them whenever you want. Gino Ochik, Darren McCarty, all the interviews, every single one of them, Tim Taylor, Brett Harkins, Chris Felix, they're all going to be up there. So tune in throughout the summer. I'm also going to release some content every now and then just to kind of keep people interested. But the main point is take a little break. Go ahead and revamp the internet uh, archives a little bit or my bank of interviews and then get rolling again when September comes around. So thank you again for supporting us. Please don't forget to follow on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. Appreciate everybody spreading the word about the podcast. Really hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, if you just want to talk some hockey, don't forget you can always drop me an email at brettsmall84 at gmail.com. That's brettsmall84 at gmail.com. Have a great summer. We'll catch you in September for another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History.